I'm Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, multiple Ironman finisher, and your host of the TriDoc Podcast, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. As in so many other aspects of life, social media has been a force for both good and bad in multi-sport. The sense of community, support, and empowerment is very much in evidence in the wonderful podcasts and YouTube channels of, say, Humans of Triathlon, Matt Legrand, and even Triathlon Taren. Though I know he isn't everyone's cup of tea, he has been hugely helpful to newbies coming into the sport and those who are maturing from back of the Packers to middle of the Packers. Before social media, Triathlon Taren doesn't exist, and a lot of folks that he speaks to are either left on their own to figure things out or never get into the sport in the first place. Other avenues, such as Instagram, have also been important forces for good. Two of my good friends, Sergio Gaetan and Courtney Knapp, are on there and have huge followings, whom they influence with their relentless positivity and supportive and empowering messages. Unfortunately, though, as you all know, there's a darker side to social media, and triathlon-related social media is no different. Spend any time on the message boards of a site like Slow Twitch, and you're equally likely to get helpful advice or told off for asking what some self-righteous anonymous poster deems is a stupid question that apparently warranted an insulting and personally abusive response. I saw further evidence of this phenomenon on Instagram recently. After Ironman Victoria 70.3, a person who I used to follow posted pictures of two bikes in transition belonging to pro triathletes. He pointed out in a rather disparaging manner that is fairly typical for this particular poster that both of these individuals were pretty much stupid for daring to show up at a race with such inferior bikes possessing such low-quality aerodynamics and that if they ever really wanted to amount to anything, they would have to step up their bike game. I was appalled at this for a number of reasons, not the least of which was the fact that the race numbers were clearly visible in the post and therefore the bike owners were easily identifiable. But it really goes beyond that. The poster has no idea whatsoever of the personal or financial situations of either of these athletes. Who is he to pontificate over their choice of bikes and to make them feel inferior because they likely can't afford what he would deem to be a suitable bike? These young pros are likely struggling to make it on the pro circuit and don't have bike sponsors, and probably struggle even to travel to races. How about celebrating their accomplishments of making the pro ranks without needing the most expensive superbike? And what about the message this sends to newer or established middle-of-the-pack triathletes? Should you only participate in the sport if you can afford top-of-the-line gear? Absolutely not. I say the triathlon should be a positive environment with an everyone-is-welcome attitude. And I, for one, have no tolerance for this kind of bike-shaming, smarmy, holier-than-thou approach. I, for one, have unfollowed this Instagram poster and would urge you all to do the same when you see similar negative posts or commentary in the future on whatever platform it might be. On the show today, Megan Hotman is an attorney in Boulder, Colorado, where she has built a practice catering to cyclists who are injured in collisions with motorists. She joins me a little later on to discuss what all cyclists should know and try to remember to do in the event that the worst comes to pass while out on a ride. The triathlete Routard was scheduled to visit Tennessee to provide insights on the 70.3 and Ironman races in Chattanooga. Unfortunately, some scheduling issues arose for my planned guests, so instead, I'm going to be taking you to the west coast of Canada for the incredibly scenic and incredibly difficult Ironman 70.3 Victoria. As an added bonus, I have filmed the recording of this segment and have additional footage from the race venue, so head over to my TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel to take a look. First, though, I have a listener question to answer. 
Getting your nutrition right before, during, and after a race can seem like a daunting task, but it really doesn't have to be. Having a basic understanding of the fuels your body needs, as well as how much of them to take in, is well within the reach of any triathlete, and is the subject of this episode's question, coming up straight ahead. Way back in episode 5, I answered a question about intermittent fasting and its impact on performance. As part of the answer, I mentioned that while fasting was a valid strategy to improve the body's utilization of fatty acids as a fuel source, this was not something to be done before intense workouts and certainly not around races. The reason for this is that our body's preferred fuel source during intense exercise is carbohydrates or sugars, and we don't have a great way of storing these and must ingest them whenever we perform exercise for more than an hour or so. What kinds of sugars you should ingest is something that has been studied for decades, and while there's no best answer, there's some pretty reasonable guidelines. All of this brings me to the listener question for this episode. Maynor wrote to ask me about my thoughts on the consumption of a blend of maltodextrin and fructose for nutrition on race day, and maltodextrin and dextrose for post-workout nutrition. The short answer, Maynor, is that these are both excellent options, but to get into the details will, as always, require a little bit of background. Now, as I mentioned earlier, after we begin exerting ourselves at a reasonably high level of effort, our bodies need a continuous supply of fuel in order to keep us going. Initially, glycogen in the liver and muscle is broken down to liberate glucose molecules, the preferred metabolic substrate for our cells, in order to power us along. But after an hour or so, that source of sugar is depleted, and then alternative sources have to be found. If we don't fuel, then fat is going to be metabolized to provide glucose, but this is a relatively inefficient way of doing things. So in order to maintain peak performance, fueling with readily available sugars in the form of carbohydrates is really the best way to keep going. By studying runners and cyclists, researchers have determined that the optimal amount of carbohydrate to be ingested by an endurance athlete performing at about 70% of peak intensity or more for more than an hour is 60 to 70 grams per hour. Now here is where things get a little bit complicated and we'll have to take a bit of a deeper dive. In order to be useful, carbohydrates have to first be absorbed into the bloodstream. An important way to improve nutrition during a race is to leverage the fact that our intestines use different kinds of transporters to take up different kinds of sugars. So if we combine different sugars in what we eat or drink, then we can help in maximizing the uptake of carbohydrates within the small intestine and therefore maximize our performance. For example, glucose is taken up by the intestines by a specific transporter that requires the presence of sodium or salt while fructose, another simple sugar, is taken up by a second transporter. If we ingest a mix of these two sugars, then we maximize the uptake of both sugars together and allow for the uptake of 60 to 70 grams an hour to easily be handled. Maltodextrin, the substance that Maynor asked about, is simply a polymer of glucose molecules. That is to say, it's a string of glucose molecules bonded together. It's made from rice, corn, or potato starch, and it's easily digested and liberates plenty of glucose to serve as cellular fuel. Now, a second concept to understand is that of the glycemic index. First invented as a means of helping diabetics understand how different foods impact their blood sugars, the glycemic index gives an indication of how fast your blood sugar can be expected to rise after ingesting a given food. The higher the glycemic index, the more quickly your blood sugar is going to rise. The glycemic index, however, gives no indication as to how high your blood sugar will actually go, just how quickly it's going to get there. 
How high it gets is related to how much you ingest, how quickly it's absorbed, and how fast your body responds with increased secretion of insulin. At any rate, combining carbohydrates with different glycemic indexes is an excellent way to prevent the dreaded sugar spike and subsequent sugar drop. With a sudden rise in blood sugar, your body reacts by secreting insulin, and levels can fall rather precipitously, leaving you suddenly almost hypoglycemic and feeling very fatigued. Maltodextrin, with its very high glycemic index, is one of those sugars that can spike your glucose very quickly. Insulin would then be secreted and your glucose could suddenly precipitously fall, leaving you with that very fatigued feeling. However, fructose has a very low glycemic index. So if we combine maltodextrin and fructose, then we not only allow for the maximizing of uptake of carbohydrates because of the different receptors and different transporters in the intestine, but we also allow for a continuous supply of glucose in the blood because the maltodextrin will provide an initial boost and the fructose will kick in just a little bit later. So you can see that with respect to the first part of Maynor's question, the combination of maltodextrin and fructose is an excellent way to fuel during exercise, including racing. So long as you're taking in 60 to 70 grams an hour, you're going to be doing just fine. The addition of small amounts of protein and fat can also be helpful, although the research here is split as to whether or not those fuels confer any real added benefits to carbohydrate alone. One important thing to consider, and I mentioned it earlier, is that in order to make use of fuel, carbohydrate has to be absorbed from the intestines, and for that to happen, they need to first pass from the stomach. Now, as anyone who has participated in a 70.3 or Ironman race is well aware, this can sometimes become problematic. And the reason for that is because with increasing exertion, gastric emptying can become impaired, leading to the dreaded bloating, nausea, and even vomiting that can ruin a triathlete's day. For this reason, it's really important to be sure that you start fueling early, and at the first signs of any kind of gastrointestinal distress, you dial back the effort just a little bit to allow for improved gastrointestinal function. So what about nutrition after exercise is done? What do we need to do to consider in the recovery period, and how should that inform our choices of fuel during that period? Well, as I mentioned before, during high-intensity efforts, the first source of fuel that our bodies make use of is glucose, liberated from glycogen stores from both the liver and the muscle. And after the completion of exercise, our bodies are pretty much depleted. And so they make it a priority to replenish those depleted glycogen stores as fast as possible in anticipation of any additional high-intensity efforts that may come afterwards. During this period, then, it's important to consume carbohydrates that will provide easily available glucose molecules for the liver and muscle to string together into glycogen. To do this, carbohydrates with high glycemic indices are preferred. Fructose, with its low glycemic index, is really not suitable in recovery, but maltodextrin and another sugar dextrose, both have very high glycemic indexes and are perfectly suitable during this time period. During the recovery period, protein is also important for the repair of any muscle damage that might have occurred during exercise, but sugars really do take priority for the reasons that I've highlighted. So let me try and summarize all this as succinctly as I can. During exercise efforts of more than about 70% of peak effort, glycogen stores are depleted pretty quickly, after maybe an hour or two. It's important to ingest 60 to 70 grams per hour of carbohydrates beginning no later than one hour after beginning exercise. Combining carbohydrates that have different glycemic indices and that make use of different uptake transporters in the gut can allow for a maximization of carbohydrate uptake and for a smooth and sustained rise in blood glucose. Salt is a requirement for glucose uptake and should be included in whatever you're taking in. 
Too much sugar can not only cause gut problems, but can also result in the gastric distress if your effort is too high. So practice your nutrition just like you would anything else for a race. And once you have it dialed in, stick to it. Recovery period nutrition should include high glycemic index carbohydrates to maximize glycogen repletion. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the show? Well, email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. My guest today is Megan Hotman, also known as the Cyclist Lawyer, who exclusively represents cyclists and is a recognized legal expert and advocate in the cycling community. She has represented over 120 individual cyclists and handles cases nationwide. Megan provides bike law education seminars to cyclists, local bike clubs, as well as to law enforcement personnel. She has been featured on HBO Real Sports with Brian Gumbel and in Outside Magazine for her work on bike cases and for her advocacy and education work to make cycling safer. Megan has authored countless articles and also co-authored a cycling law resource book called Bicycle Accidents, Biomechanical, Engineering, and Legal Aspects, published in 2016. Megan is a former elite road and track cyclist. She achieved her dream of racing for a pro bike team in 2011 and made a run at the 2012 London Olympics. Now, Megan mainly competes in cyclocross and gravel races and has raced three Ironman triathlons. She commutes almost everywhere by bike and incorporates some aspect of health, wellness, or sport into every day. In 2018, Megan completed her goal of riding 10,000 miles in one year. But today, I am pleased to have her as my guest on the TriDoc podcast. Megan, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Megan, you know, we uh, I said this to you a little earlier, we're kind of uh, both of us working on, you know, different sides of the same kind of situation. Uh, I uh, unfortunately have the um, unfortunate position of, of seeing cyclists at their, you know, worst moment after they've been involved in a collision. And then you get to help them put things back together uh, when necessary from a legal aspect. One of the things that uh, I have read about and that I have heard from other cyclists who have uh, had an interaction with uh, law enforcement officers after a bicycle and motor vehicle collision is that the police are not always necessarily as uh, pro-cyclist as we would like them to be. Um, From your standpoint, uh, is that an accurate representation or is this just something that cyclists are kind of like getting a vibe that maybe isn't true? I would say the latter. I would say it's getting a vibe that isn't true. Um, my work with law enforcement the last six years, and it's been pretty continuous and with a varied group of law enforcement officers, is that at the end of the day, 99% of them just want to do a really great job and they just want to get the investigation right. And it isn't that they're slanted for or against cyclists or they're slanted for or against motorists. It's that they want to show up, investigate the scene, get witness statements, you know, conduct their forensic analysis and do the very best job they can appropriately citing the party, whoever it is that caused the collision. Um, I will say with working with law enforcement also, I have realized that many of their departments just simply had not thoroughly trained them in what the laws said that cyclists can and cannot do or what motorists are required to do. And so as we've just started to dismantle some of those understandings and added some clarity around some of those issues, it's gotten even easier for them to to do a, an unbiased, fair, accurate investigation of these collisions. So can you expand a little bit on that? What are sure. some of those things that uh, cyclists can and can't do? Absolutely. So in every single state, the, the starting point, the, the takeaway that I want everyone to know is 
cyclists have all the same rights and all the same obligations as the operator of a motor vehicle. So if you use your turn signals in your car, if you uh, believe that cars should have front and rear lights on at night, which of course is legally required, stopping at stop signs, stopping at stoplights, um, you know, yielding to pedestrians, pulling over for emergency vehicles, all of those types of obligations that we have as motor vehicle operators, which most of us who ride bikes also drive cars, those same requirements also apply to us when we're riding our bicycle. And similarly, we have almost all of the same rights on our bike as we have on our in our cars, and with very, very few exceptions. Um, in fact, you can ride your bike on almost any single road unless it's a specific interstate that's specially designated as um, a, a no cycling area. It's very rare that there's a place that you could drive your vehicle that you can't operate your bicycle. And so it's really just helpful to remember all the same rights, all the same obligations. And so when we brought that to law enforcement and just really reinforced that and just continue to remind them that you don't treat a cyclist any different with respect to a collision investigation. Um, you know, they're not second class road users. They should not be presumed at fault simply because they're on their bicycle. They start on even par, even ground with a motor vehicle operator and um, you need to conduct your investigation as a result very fairly that way. Now, one of the things that uh, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm not sure of this, but maybe unique to Colorado is I know that in Colorado, motorists have to give cyclists a, a, a reasonable space. They have yes. to give them three feet. Um, what is the rule in Colorado and in other states about riding uh, two abreast? Well, so let me back up to the three foot because, yes, we are blessed to have that here in Colorado. But I would say that law is now in the books in roughly two thirds of the states. Certainly the majority of the states have a three foot law. And even some states are going to um, and the next level, which is that they've taken it to a four or a six foot passing space in higher speed limit areas. So basically the higher the stakes, the bigger the, the passing space needs to be, which is fantastic. And that is a problem because many of our motorists in these states with three-foot laws don't know about the law or don't know how to do it, if you will. Um, one thing I want to mention about the three-foot law is that a lot of motorists don't know that you can cross the center yellow line if it's a solid yellow in order to give a cyclist three feet, so long as it's safe of oncoming traffic. And because many motorists don't know that, they feel pinned behind the cyclist between the yellow line and they feel like they can't pass the cyclist because they've been taught not to cross that center yellow line. So any state that has a three foot law implicitly has this exception to the rule of crossing that center line because you must always give a cyclist three feet, but you must of course always make sure it's safe of oncoming traffic. So the rule is if you can't safely pass a cyclist with three feet due to oncoming traffic, then you need to wait behind the cyclist until it's safe to pass. And as those of us who ride know, it's incredibly terrifying to be passed too closely, um, especially when a car tries to shoot the gap between a cyclist on their right and an oncoming car on their left. It's incredibly terrifying. Um, and so you asked me then about the rule about riding two abreast, which is, of course, a subject that is really confusing to many cyclists and many law enforcement. And here in Colorado, at least, the rule is that you basically cannot ever be more than two abreast. So if you're three or more wide, that's a problem. So you can ride two abreast so long as you don't impede the normal and reasonable flow of traffic. And so what does that mean? What does impede mean? Um, my work with law enforcement has, has at least indicated to me that most law enforcement officers believe roughly five or more cars backed up behind you is starting to look like impede to them. So if just one vehicle has to slow down a little bit and take a second or two to pass you and your friend riding side by side, that's not impeding. 
But if you and your friend or you and several of your friends are causing mayhem and you have a bunch of cars backed up, then that is considered impeding. And really what law enforcement would ask of you at that point is to ride single file to facilitate these cars overtaking you. Yeah, I got to say, that's one of those things where it sounds like, gosh, you could be right, but you could also be dead right. Because motorists, like you said, they don't know what's going on. And all they know is they see two cyclists riding side by side. And even though the cyclists may be allowed to do that, they'll consider the fact that they themselves, regardless of whether or not there's any cars behind them, if they're being impeded, they're like, hell, you're impeding traffic. Correct. And they're going to take it out on you. Correct. I mean, you know, what I always say about that is like, picture yourself in the car behind your group ride. And if, if you're the motorist behind your own group ride and you feel like the group is riding predictably, safely, that you feel confident in your ability to overtake the group, then you're doing a really nice job with your group ride. And chances are, you're riding really tight two by two. You're riding very predictably. You don't have people swerving all over the road. The group is very tight. There's not a bunch of gaps and uncertainty. And what really gives motorists anxiety with respect to when we're talking basically more than one cyclist is just this this issue of unpredictability in groups and us being very disorganized and it making it very difficult for them to pass us. So I always challenge cyclists to to do that because again most of us drive cars if you were behind your own group ride and you were trying to get to work or trying to get home to give your kids dinner how would you feel about what you're observing on the road yeah i think that's great advice uh okay so if the worst comes to pass and you're involved in a collision what should a cyclist do a great question i also just want to compliment you on your use of the word crash and collision so far uh we've removed the, the a word if you will the word accident which is great um, so well done. Yeah, I'm a physician. Okay. I'm a physician in the emergency department. We uh, we've been very conscious of that language for a long time. I love it. It's it's a huge push in bicycle advocacy, and we can get into that. But um, but the use of the words and the nomenclature, it really does matter. It, it helps not minimalize uh, the significance of these incidents. So thanks for the the word choice being conscious. Um, so if you are to find yourself in the unfortunate position of having just been struck by a car or you're with a friend or you're part of a group ride where this has taken place, number one, always, always, always is to get law enforcement involved. Always call 911. Even if you think it's no big deal, even if the person doesn't seem injured, it's really, really critical to have the incident documented in a formal police report. Um, Even if for some reason you go home and you don't do it on site, you need to get online and file a report right away. But it's, of course, ideal to have police come to the scene and do a report. I can't tell you how many cyclists I've talked to who were hit by a motorist. They exchanged information on the side of the road. They thought that the motorist was being, quote, cool about it and promised that they would take care of stuff and said things like, you know, please don't get my insurance involved. I don't want my rates to go up. I'll take care of you. I'll replace your bike, so on and so on. And then, you know, the cyclist ends up with some serious medical issue that they didn't know they had at the scene because our friend Adrenaline masks all those things. And sure enough, the motorist is MIA and they don't want to pay for anything. And and then the cyclist is left high and dry without formal documentation. So always call 911. With that is going to come the summons of typically a fire truck and an ambulance. And I always tell cyclists, unless you are just 100% sure that you are fine, which is rare when you impact a vehicle, take the ambulance ride because I've had so many clients who looked, quote, fine at the scene. And I'm sure your experience would would complement this is they get to the ER and they have a fractured pelvis or they have a um, an, an abdominal swelling, abdominal bleeding, or they have a punctured lung. And, you know, things are more serious than apparent 
at the scene. And so the ambulance ride is really a big way of the cyclist protecting their health and also just documenting the significance of the injuries. Um, I've had clients who, you know, hit their head in the collision and then rode home, not knowing that they were super concussed in a really bad place. And then once you're in the emergency room, like we talked about earlier, making sure that the police does, they do collect the the cyclist side of the story. So if they didn't get your story at the scene, um, making sure that you somehow contact the police officer doing the investigation, making sure that they have your side of the story. And this seems really silly, but also if you have health insurance and you hopefully do as a cyclist, making sure that the hospital has that information on file because it seems strange, but oftentimes the police officer will give the driver's insurance information to the hospital, believing that they're, they're doing a good thing and they're trying to help. But the driver's insurance company is not going to pay the cyclist hospital bill. And then what we see happening is the cyclist suddenly ends up in collections because there's no insurance information on file. And suddenly they're getting hit with collections notice and their credit takes a hit through no fault of their own because of this small sort of oversight that happens. And it happens all the time. It happens enough that that's why I'm mentioning it. Um, so those wow, are kind of the top I, three I, things. Yeah. 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 I mean, the, the driver's insurance company is never going to pay the hospital. They're only going to ever settle up with the injured person, the claimant, which is the cyclist. They're not going to pay any of their providers. Um, and in this day and age, there's something strange going on among ambulance providers where they're really consciously trying to avoid dealing with health insurance. So they've also been pursuing the injured cyclist for the full ambulance billed amount, which is not okay. It needs to go through health insurance. So it's just a little thing that we just see so often. It, it's, it's becoming a thing. Um, and then, and then my next big thing would be that I, I know that emergency rooms are there to address the big ticket items. And oftentimes we see cyclists sent home from ERs really not being told, you know, specifically follow up with an orthopedic specialist, follow up with a neurologist. Uh, and so they sort of think that they've been given a clean bill of health because they didn't, you know, have a, a large bone sticking out and then so then there's sort of this failure to get to follow up for the injuries that become of course the ones that plague them the most um, especially with respect to concussions and the head injuries that we're now seeing in these injuries really going unnoticed undiagnosed so uh, yes everything that you get in the ER is really important but it's also incumbent upon you to seek follow-up for any of the injuries that are sustained. In your practice, have you noticed the proliferation of video cameras on bikes and have they been helpful in the case for cyclists to make when they're dealing with a collision? Yes and yes, although I would say it's not as much of a proliferation. I can't say the word. Uh, it's um, (laughs) It's not as common as I would hope and would want. I strongly encourage cyclists to ride with cameras. I tell everyone I know to ride with them. They can only ever help you, um, especially in this day and age of the technology being super easy and super simple to just plug and play. There's really no complexity, you know, um, barrier to entry, if you will. You don't have to download a bunch of stuff and do a bunch of stuff with files. Uh, My favorite is the Cycleek camera, C-Y-C-L-I-Q, because it's got the built-in lights with the camera. So it's one unit that does two things. And what I really like about the rear-facing camera especially is that it's like a fishbowl. And so you can really clearly see the vehicle. You can see the license plate. You can see the driver's face. You can see the corporate logos on the sides of the vehicle doing what they're doing. And that footage is just priceless um, 
even if there's no collision, but a vehicle passes super closely, for example, I've seen several people now use that footage and report it back to the, the company of the commercial fleet. Or I had a friend who was passed way too closely in a, uh, it was either an ambulance or fire truck that was not on a siren call and it just passed him way too closely. And he submitted it to the department and the chief ended up using it to train their entire staff and like, hey, this is not how we pass the cyclists. We need to give them three feet. So, you know, video footage doesn't lie. It makes it very clear what, what the incident was that unfolded. Um, it's very hard for a driver's insurance company to dispute liability when you can see exactly what the driver has done. Um, but like I always tell cyclists, remember that the footage captures everything. And so if you were just two minutes ago flipping the driver off and throwing things at their car and threatening them at a red light, and then the car comes upon you and does something, you know, it's going to capture everything. So it's it's very beneficial, especially for cyclists who are overtaken from behind and hit from behind because they, of course, would have never seen the car or seen anything to identify it, and the footage is, is capturing all of it. Oftentimes, cyclists hit from behind that way are left unconscious. Those tend to be the hit-and-run situations that we see. So the footage is imperative, of course, in those situations. And it just makes it now, very I don't want to advocate. I don't want to advocate for people getting into, you know, tiffs with drivers. I personally no. feel like, you know, somebody driving a 5,000 pound vehicle, they, whatever they have to say to me, they, they win because, That's right. you know, I, I you That's know, right. but the thing is, is like, okay, so if somebody flipped off a driver or threw something at a driver, are you suggesting that that gives them license to hit no, you? Because no, no. I, I doesn't mean, give them license, but it is part of the overall story. So if you can just sort of fast forward a year from that moment and put yourself in a courtroom where the video footage is being shown to the jury. One version of the story is that this motorist threatened the cyclist's life with this lethal weapon known as a vehicle, and everyone can get behind why that's 100% wrong. But the full version of the story being that the cyclist was doing other things that were menacing or threatening to the driver or whatever the behavior was, it's part of the complete picture. They certainly do not deserve any harassment or threatening by the vehicle, but it tells the complete story. So that's always my point to people is, yes, ride with cameras, but also remember that your conduct, just like the motorist conduct, is being recorded. And it's part of the full story. I mean, I think it's a great reminder. You definitely, I mean, like I said, I, I don't ever get into it with drivers because no matter what they do, they're driving a car yes, and yes. I'm, I'm going to lose that yes. battle. Yes. Uh, yeah. So it's still a little bit concerning to, to think that, you know, in the heat of the moment, if a cyclist did something that would somehow allow a driver to get off for doing whatever it is they did that put the cyclist in the hospital. But anyways. And I wouldn't say it's um, to get them off, but yeah, again, it just, it tells, it's like a bar fight, right? Like the person who throws the first punch, if you act like you're standing there and someone just punches you, everyone agrees that's hundred percent wrong. But if there's a backstory there where there was some words exchanged and stuff before the first person threw the punch, I'm certainly not saying it, it gives anyone license to do anything. It's just part of the complete and full picture of the story. Yeah, I understand. I understand. But it's one thing if you throw a punch and get punched back. It's another yes. thing if you throw a punch and somebody pulls a gun on you. I mean, yes. they're very unequal. That's exactly right. Um, 100%. Insurance. You mentioned it before in terms yes. of health insurance. I know something that uh, I've always wondered about is uh, the insurance specifically, you know, my bike gets totaled. What covers that? Or is it covered? Or am I on the hook for my, you know, $10,000 toy that I'd love yeah. to have? Yeah, great question. It depends on how the bike is damaged. 
so uh, we'll just stay in the scenario that we've been in, which is that you've been hit by a motorist. And let's just say it's not your fault. It's the motorist's fault. That's going to be the driver's auto insurance that's going to cover the replacement of your bicycle. And there's a whole battle there about how much it's worth and all of that. And I won't get into all that today. That's part of the reason my clients want legal representation to handle that part so that they can get a full replacement value. But um, if someone is at fault and they've damaged or or ruined your bicycle with their vehicle, their auto coverage is going to take care of that through the property portion of the coverage. Um, if you damage your own bike, let's say you drive into your garage and you forget that it's up on the, the roof rack on the top of your car, then you may have a couple policies that would kick in. Most likely a homeowner's insurance or a renter's insurance is going to cover something like that where you damage it yourself. There's nothing on your own auto policy that's going to cover the replacement of your, of your bicycle, but it's typically a, a homeowner's or a renter's policy. Um, there are now specialty insurance companies that you can use to insure your bicycle specifically. I always just tell people, do your research and make sure that you don't end up over-investing in insurance um, that isn't going to actually serve you. Make sure you know what your deductibles are. If it's a $2,000 bike and your deductible is $1,000, you know, do the math. Make sure it makes sense for you. Right. And I, and I would imagine auto insurance companies think that you know your $5,000 specialized with the race wheels is probably the same as a Schwinn that they That's can right. replace for a couple That's hundred right. bucks. Yeah. Yes. And, and even if they don't understand that, they love to do... I just had a recent example of a client in Arizona where the adjuster went and visited the bike at the bike shop because he didn't take our word for it, that it was totaled. And he was talking about how it, it was ridden hard and it was covered in rust. And this client's bike is the top of the line Trek... Um, cyclocross bike made fully of carbon, which is physically incapable mm-hmm. of rusting uh, in, in the frame, at least. And um, it, it was a year old, and it was not ridden hard, if you will. And so they'll they'll look for any way they possibly can to try and diminish the value of the claim. They'll try and go out and find the same bike on eBay and say, well, this person here on eBay is asking this for the bike, so that's all all it's worth. Which of course is a, not a legitimate way of figuring out the value of a bike. So we oftentimes get experts involved and we use people in the bicycle industry to help us with that. Um, so it's it's a situation where they try to underpay and you just have to fight back. Right. Okay, well, let's finish with one last question. Sure. And that is things that you should never do. Specifically, I mean, we've talked about don't get into it with drivers, behave yes. yourself, uh, the, you know, ride the way you would want people to ride if you were driving a car. But what are things that you should avoid doing if you are specifically involved in a collision? Number one, and this is so hard, is stay off social media. The first gut reaction for cyclists and, you know, anyone, when you suffer a loss or when you have a setback in life in our day and age is to share it on social media and and the perception that that's your support network and that you want those people to know and you would like to receive some support and some, you know, love back from that community um, the problem is with the insurance industry being the way it is now, you know, they've always for years and years and years put injured claimants under surveillance. That's not a new concept. They've always trailed people in unmarked vans and, you know, verified that you you really are injured and you don't just take that knee brace off and go ski moguls when you think no one's looking. Um, they've done that for years. And that's, of course, a big part of keeping insurance fraud um, to a minimum. And I understand it. But now they've got entire teams of people who sit in an office all day long and stalk an injured claimant all over the internet. And so it's not even whether you're posting things that are disingenuous, like you said that you broke your arm and yet you're playing softball. It's even things like 
I'm injured from this bike crash, but I went ahead and went on my family vacation three months later that we planned for a year. And there's a picture of me just smiling with my family, drinking a beer on a beach, which has nothing to do with the fact that I was hit by a car on my bike, but it's still going to get waved around in the courtroom at the jury trial. And it's still going to be very detrimental to your case, to your overall case. And, and, and the really important thing about social media is that the insurance companies are using it to actually just change the entire focus of the case. So now it has nothing to do with what the driver did and how they hit you and where they hit you and what happened. Now it's, oh, so what beach were you on? And how did you feel good to do this? And you're smiling a lot, but you claim you're in pain. And and when was this post taken? And it just becomes so off topic and so off focus. And then the juries are confused. And then people who are very deserving of appropriate verdicts and settlements don't get them just because of these silly social media posts that don't add any value. So we always tell people to stay offline, stay off Strava, stay off anything that's public while your case is pending because there's just no upside and you'll end up explaining. Wow. Your- that's really, that's really harsh. That seems yeah. like not only did you just get hit by a car, not only are you like injured for a period of time, but then you can't even like resume your regular life or that's at least right. you can't resume the appearance of your regular life until this is all settled That that, that, it seems like the damage just keeps going. It, it absolutely does. Uh, we talk about this all the time with our clients, that this is going to feel like you are continually re-victimized. And I will be candid that that is what the process is intended to do from the insurance side of things. Um, insurance companies are in the business of collecting premiums, not paying claims. And so, um, yes, it's not intended to be a friendly process for an injured claimant, unfortunately. And so... This is a small thing, as hard as it is for people to go dark at a time when they really need extra support. We always just tell our clients, focus on your true family and friends, the true people, not your 5,000 followers. Like, Focus on your true ride or die, and those are going to be your people for this time period. And then you can get back online and you can explain why you've been quiet when this whole thing's over with. And it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. The results are worth it. But it's very hard in the moment for someone, especially if they can't be out riding and they're sitting at home, they're bored, they want to be on social media. Um, you know, we just tell them simply just don't post. It's just becoming too much of a thing across the country and, and as it relates to these personal injury cases. Um, so that's one wow. thing. Another thing would be um, you maybe don't think you want a lawyer. Or you're not even in the headspace to be thinking about it. Insurance companies for the driver will call the injured cyclist very soon after the crash. They're actually not supposed to for two weeks by law, but they do it anyway. And so let's just say that you've broken your clavicle and you had clavicle surgery and you're, you're on some oxy or some, you know, some moderate pain, painkillers for a few days after surgery. And you get a phone call from the insurance company and they want to know what happens. And you tell them the whole story and you say things like, but I'm fine. And yeah, I'm not in very much pain or whatever. And you're speaking truthfully. Well, they're going to use all those things against you and take them out of context. And that's part of the reason they're not supposed to call someone for two weeks after. It's because you're not in a good headspace to really even give your side of the story. Um, so we always tell people, listen, if the insurance company starts calling you, you don't have to talk to them. Tell them you're interviewing lawyers. Tell them you just need some more time. But just lay low. Don't give them your statement. Really, the only people to cooperate with are the police and, to that extent, the district attorney. Um who's going to be prosecuting the charges. There's really no other insurance company that you need to, you know, be actively engaging with right away. And we see those statements taken out of context and used against people all the time in a very unfair way. So that would be the next thing. Um, Number three would be 
uh, cyclists want to get their bike fixed right away. Like, oh, my bike's broken. I'm going to take it to the shop. I'm going to get it fixed right away. All of which I understand. However, oftentimes the broken bike becomes one of the most powerful exhibits that we can show at trial. And um, even like if you're in the ambulance and the EMTs cut your, your cycling kit off because of your injuries, you know, keep that cycling kit. That's a very powerful piece of uh, evidence that will help you throughout your case. And, oh, by the way, it's also something that they need to pay for. Uh, well, when you start throwing away all this really powerful evidence because you think you don't want it or it's broken, um, then now we have a, a courtroom where we don't have this really interesting evidence to show a jury and, and we lose out on the impact of that. So don't fix the bike, you know, wait and see if it needs to just perhaps be replaced, perhaps save it as a trial exhibit for your lawyer to have a very good outcome for you. Wow. Megan, this has been a incredibly enlightening conversation. Oh, oh, I have great. learned I have learned three incredibly important things. Number oh, awesome. one, I'm I'm getting a rear view camera immediately. Yes. Number two, uh, number two, I am uh, going to continue my habit of riding probably 75 to 80% of my rides indoor on the trainer where okay. I'm safe. <laughs> and number Aww. three, I'm keeping you on speed dial because if this ever comes to happen, I think before I call my wife, I'm going to call you because oh, okay. I cannot... I cannot believe where this conversation went. I am so, so happy we had this conversation. Oh, and I am so hopeful that my listeners will have be probably sitting there just like I have been for most of this conversation with their jaws hanging open. But also, oh, wow. this is like incredibly important information. Yeah. And, and I mean, I hope n I hope nobody who's listening to this ever has to, you know, make use of this information. I but if the worst comes to pass... This was all really, really important and really, really enlightening stuff. So I can't thank you enough. Megan oh, Hopman, awesome. also known as the Megan Hopman, also known as the cyclist lawyer. She uh, works in Boulder, Colorado, and uh, is uh, a very accomplished cyclist as well as a very accomplished lawyer and represents many cyclists across the country. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Immediately after I concluded our interview, I spoke with Megan a little bit longer on the phone, and she told me that she has a code that can be used on the Cyclic website. That's at www.cyliq.com, where you can find forward and rear-facing cameras and light combinations. If you enter the Cyclist Lawyer, without spaces, T-H-E-C-Y-C-L-I-S-T-L-A-W-Y-E-R, at the time of checkout in the promotional code, you'll get 25% off. Megan receives no financial compensation for this, and neither do I. I'll include the website and the code in the show notes for this episode. And now it's time for the Triathlete Routal, that segment of the show in which I give a travel guide of sorts to a race on the WTC 70.3 and Ironman calendars. And for this specific episode, I have a special treat in store. If you go to my YouTube channel, the TriDoc Coaching channel on YouTube, if you enter T-R-I-D-O-C without a space into the search bar, you'll be able to find my channel where you will find a video of this episode. And uh, that's particularly special because I've taken quite a bit of footage from a race that I just did. 
with my friend, Mike Jackson, who's joining me for this episode. Mike is a uh, triathlete for the past three years, and uh, his uh, one of his highlights from his uh, brief career is that he finished on the podium at Santa Rosa last September. And Santa qual- Cruz. Santa Cruz, that's the same <laughs> term as Santa Rosa. Santa Cruz last year, and qualified for the World Championships in Nice, and he's joining me because we both uh, just participated in the uh, Ironman 70.3 Victoria, which is the subject of the triathlete Routal for uh, this episode. So please do check out the YouTube channel where you could see video of this. And for now, uh, please do listen in because uh, this is a really good episode on an excellent race. So let's begin as uh, we always do with a discussion as to whether or not you need to sign up early for this race. Is this one that fills up quickly or can you wait till the very end? So I actually put off signing up for this race. I knew it was on my calendar since probably December, uh, and I just put it off and put it off. Uh, ended up signing up a month, maybe a month and a half ago, uh, just because I wanted to see how I was feeling uh, for St. George when I did it uh, at the beginning of last month. Uh, I had no problem signing up. Um, I even think that they were taking... Uh, registrations as late as yesterday possibly this morning uh here yeah um which you have to pay an extra fee for um but yeah so getting into the race isn't difficult um that is unusual uh and i know from looking at the website that uh it was not full uh they were taking registration uh as recently as you know a couple days ago uh taking registration on site is really interesting um so yeah this is one you could sign up late it was a pretty small race as far as these kinds of races go there was uh 1700 participants transition i don't think could have handled too many more no it it seemed like it was pretty packed pretty busy yeah Uh, um, but that's also nice because there isn't a lot of extra room. Right. Um, so. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's talk about travel and gear transport considerations. Uh, Tri-Bike Transport does service this race and uh, was an excellent choice. Uh, both of us yep, utilized them. Uh, they are located directly next to Transition, which was really fantastic for picking up the bikes uh for the race, and then especially for dropping them off immediately afterwards. Yep. Uh, how about travel? Uh, getting to Victoria can be a little bit onerous. Uh, it's not the most straightforward. How how did you manage it both last year and this year? So last year, uh, I flew into Vancouver, uh, which was uh, pretty easy. Um, I live in LA, so it was a direct flight into Vancouver. Um, and then stayed there a night, uh, took the ferry over, actually rented a car in Vancouver, and then and then drove over. Uh, on the ferry, uh, which was uh, a treat. Um, I really like the Pacific Northwest, and being able to see the Canadian part of that was was an absolute joy. Um, this year, I decided to uh, actually fly directly into Victoria, um, just because of, of time constraints, and and I wanted to make sure that I was maximizing my time uh, actually flying out. So I ended up flying through Seattle. Uh, had a fairly lengthy layover there, um, and then it's, I think it's a 30-minute flight from Seattle into Vancouver, uh, so faster than Vancouver, you're gonna, Victoria. Or into Maybe, Victoria, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Uh, so faster than your swim is probably going to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, th- and that just worked out great. Yeah. Um, it was easy to get a car. The airport is very small. Yeah. Um, I think they have 10... Uh, mm-hmm. 
gates. Gates, yeah. and and that's it. Uh, so, and you know, it's never really busy. Yeah. So. The big thing I found was really just uh, finding flights in terms of you know when I wanted to get here for right. the race. Yep. Uh, it wasn't the easiest thing, and then also it became prohibitively expensive to fly in the days I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so an option is to fly into Vancouver and then take the ferry. The ferry's incredibly cheap. I paid like seventeen fifty Canadian to walk on, and uh, I have some footage, uh, time lapse that I took. I mean, it's if you get the right day, and I did. I mean, the seas were calm. It was a beautiful, sunny day with blue sky. I mean, it's a spectacular ride. Um, and just incredibly beautiful, as you said, going through the islands. And I mean, it is yeah. the Pacific Northwest after all. Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, once, just really beautiful. Yeah, once you get off the open ocean and yeah. into the channel, um, you're cutting through islands yeah. and uh, I, it's almost always calm there. So you can go out on deck and yeah. you can see... Uh, all the little islands, all the people that yeah. have houses there, everybody is, you know, waving at the the ferry as it goes by, and yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Really I, trip. If uh, if you have a car, uh, if you if you go by foot, you you just walk on and you just buy a ticket. If you're going by car, it's it's advised to reserve, but it's not like you need to reserve, you know, ages in advance. You can usually reserve a week or. Yeah, know. I think I think we might have reserved it two or three weeks ahead of time. Yeah. And there's not a problem. There's a bunch of ferries they go every day, so uh, and from different locations as well. Right. Um, so you just have to find what's available. Right. So let's talk about where to stay. Um, you could tell us where you stayed last year and then again this year. Uh, so last year we stayed at a Best Western up here in Sydney, um, which is where we stayed up in Sydney this year as well. Um a lot of people stay down in Victoria. Um, there's a lot of hotels and stuff down there. Um, but I've found that getting to and from the race location is much easier if you stay to the north because there's so much traffic coming from the south. Yeah, and uh, the um, race hotel is the Grand Pacific, which is in uh, Victoria proper. There's a lot more lodging options in Victoria, but truthfully, I'm really happy we stayed north. Um, It was just so much easier. Um, The race is located uh, about a 10-minute, 15-minute drive from Victoria, and it was about the same from where we are in Sydney, which is a little bit north. Uh, One important thing to know about this race is uh, there's really no parking whatsoever at the race site itself. You have to park about five or six kilometers south, and they have shuttles. Uh, that's both uh, before uh, the race for packet pickup and all that stuff, but also the day of. Um, it adds, you know, it's obviously a little bit onerous. Uh, we didn't do that, though, because Mike uh, had uh, some knowledge that uh, helped us out. Yeah, so there's a gentleman that lives right by uh, the lake, the race venue, um, who every year uh, sells spots on his property. Uh, he's got a, a big piece of property uh, and sells about 90 spots uh, basically for the whole weekend. So you can go and you can park there. It's pretty uh, inexpensive. I know there are other people as well in the area that, yeah, that are doing similar things. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's that's highly recommended because you don't have to deal with shuttling and dropping off your bike and picking up your bike and and even though they provide an area to uh, basically stage your equipment to get into a car quick um, that 
tends to get backed up pretty quickly because everybody's yeah. leaving around the same time. Yeah, and the access was really poor, so yeah. it was just a traffic jam the whole time. So yep. if you can get one of those parking spots uh, in one of the uh, residents or one of the businesses, it's well worth it. And you can look online. You should be able to find information about that. If you sign up for the race, do that early because uh, those places are known and they sell out pretty quickly. Yep. All right, let's talk about the course. It's a spectacular course and incredibly difficult. One of the more difficult races that I have done on the 70.3 calendar. So let's start with the swim. Swim's in an amazing lake, really, really clean. Yeah, it's it's one of the few open water swims that's been in a lake uh, that I've done that doesn't have any sort of like sedimentary taste or taste from... uh, recreational boats or things like that um it's very clean water it's very clear water um and the lake isn't big enough to really generate any big waves or anything um so even if there is some wind uh which there rarely is in the morning yeah uh it's it's trivial. And you can see, uh, if you're watching on the video, you can see some drone footage of what the lake looks like and how clean and clear it is, but also just a you know, very basic rectangular course. It's uh, pretty straightforward, out, uh, make a turn. Uh, it must have been about 150 meters, and then make a turn to come back, uh, and you finish about 150 meters from where you start. Yeah, it, you, you basically swim all the way across the lake, yeah. turn, and then come back. Yeah, and it's a rolling start, self-seated rolling start. They started us uh, three, four abreast, uh, and they were yeah, starting three or four every five seconds or so. It was really efficient and went very well, I thought. Um uh, the sighting was fairly straightforward. Yeah. 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 I, you're not swimming into the sun at any point, right. but uh, the buoys are on your right, and on the way back, the, you're, to sight off the buoys, you're looking into the sun just a little bit. I found that personally a little bit difficult. My goggles had fogged by that point a little bit, and uh, I was having some difficulties, but, I mean, really minor. I was able to just follow the swimmers ahead of me. I'm not at the front, after all. Um the uh, water temperature water temperature was balmy it was 71 degrees uh, this year um which was surprising because it hasn't even been that warm here but because it's such a shallow lake warms up quickly it warms up very quickly yeah Um, i mean but still wetsuit legal wetsuit legal and you know i was i was toasty towards the end but still worth it because of the benefits of the wet of the full sleeve wetsuit i mean i I, i'm happy i wore a uh, full sleeve yeah it wasn't it wasn't hot enough that I felt significant discomfort. Right. I definitely, as I was pushing harder coming in the last 500 yards, I could definitely tell that it was warmer than I would necessarily like, um, but nothing that would cause a problem. Right. And coming out of the water, it's uh, nothing too exciting. There's no major, it's not a rocky beach at all. It's like a little bit of strip of sand and then you're running on grass. A couple of minor things to know about transition. Uh, there's no wetsuit strippers, which is a little bit unusual for large 70.3 yeah. race. And then, uh, but certainly not a big deal. And then uh, the other thing is uh, you cannot keep your shoes in the pedals of your bike. That apparently is a rule that is across uh, Canadian triathlons uh, don't quite understand it, but uh, it is what it is. It's the same for everybody, so not a big deal. Yeah, and they have bike marshals on Saturday that are actually going around looking for it and will either put a note on your bike if you have them clipped in and you've left um, or will tell you if you were standing there right. uh, with your, your equipment. So they won't actually touch your bike, but um, they'll, but they'll make know. sure that you yeah. know. 
Uh, okay, let's talk about the bike course. It is uh, special. <laughs> it's 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 really difficult. One of the more challenging but uh, incredibly scenic bike courses uh, on the circuit. Yeah, one one thing to know is that there is over three thousand feet of climbing on the bike. Yeah. Um, but there really aren't any major hills. So that's really spread out on the first third of the bike and the last third of the bike. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of rollers, and there's a lot of rollers that have steep grade to them. So they don't look like they're big, um, but they take a lot of effort to get up, and they zap your speed. And. They zap your legs if you're not careful. Yeah. Uh, this is a course that you've really got to manage well. Uh, if you overcook the first third or if you overcook the bike course in general, you, you're done because this bike course is legit. Uh, again, like like Mike said, 3,000 feet of elevation, but, I mean, one hill at about yeah, mile 40, that's, like, substantial, and the rest of it is just these little punchy – it's like – I compare it to, like, one of the spring classics in Belgium. I mean, you're just constantly going up or down. It's a relentless course, and if you don't manage it, you're done. And we saw – both of us saw lots yeah. of people, like, pushing way too hard on some of these hills, and we knew they were going to pay the price. And, you know, we either passed them when it was flat or else we passed them on the run hurting. Yeah. Yeah. And the first third has a significant number of turns in it. Um, it's very well manned. They have flaggers at every corner, uh, not only to make sure you know where you're going, but also to keep uh, cars and stuff away from the cyclists. Um, everywhere I went, there was cars stopped if there were any cars. Um, because it starts so early, uh, there aren't a lot of people out at the beginning of the race, which is very nice. Yeah. And, um, and you know, I mean, Really well. I mean, I was very impressed with how well marshaled it was in yeah. terms of the corners. Yep. Um, but that being said, this is a technical course. A yeah, lot absolutely. of turns, a lot of turns, and a lot of them are 90-degree turns. And uh, the road surface is, for the most part, good. But I got to say, there was a lot of those turns that were, that were either at the bottom of hills or were a little bit sketchy. I mean, I didn't feel terribly comfortable. And, I mean, we have a mutual friend who you know, had yeah, trouble. Yeah, we have, we have a friend that crashed last year, um, which was... Uh, mostly the fault of a driver so you really yeah. do have uh to be cognizant of what traffic is doing around you even though there are the flaggers there yeah drivers um, are drivers right and yeah communication gonna, between yeah. somebody standing on the road and somebody in a car that can't really talk to them or, or hear them yeah. isn't always uh perfect and, and drivers so. get impatient and do what they're going to do uh, exactly fortunately she's come back better than way better ever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, <laughs> exactly um uh, but that's not to say it was good for you. Um, anyway, so, uh, the bike is tough. Uh, I did not personally, now I, oh, that's one other thing I want to say about the bike. You know, the bike is, if you're at the front and both of us kind of got to the front fairly early, which was great because there's a lot of descents on this bike course that are winding and in wooded areas that are, you don't necessarily see a long way down the road and not everybody rides terribly well. So if you're a middle of the packer or back of the packer, you got to keep your head on a swivel because it can be potentially dangerous. I spoke with a friend of mine who was sort of a middle of the pack guy and he said he definitely felt pretty nervous, not because of his skills, but because of the skills or lack thereof of the people around him. Yeah. So you definitely got to watch definitely. out for that. Uh, that being said, the bike course is spectacular. Yeah. And, and as I said, it's sort of broken up into thirds. Uh, the middle third is very flat. 
um, and it's a good opportunity to sort of put some power down, get some speed um, as you're going uh, from the south uh, part of the peninsula to the north part. Um, You have gorgeous ocean views in that uh, section, uh, and if it's a windy day, that can be a problem. Um, but today it was, it was perfect. It was, yeah. uh, wide open. And, and that's really where you can pick up some time, uh, that you've lost from all the hills and turns and, and stuff on the rest of the course. Yeah. And I, I saw a fair number of officials out there looking for drafters, but what mm-hmm. I didn't see was a lot of drafting. But again, yeah. I, you know, I was up front. I didn't see a right. ton of people, and I don't know that there was a lot of opportunities. So um, at least for what it's worth where I was, I did not see a lot of drafting, which yeah. was nice. Yeah, me neither. Uh, okay, so it is a loop uh, by course. Your uh, transition two is the same as transition one, and uh, nothing too exciting about that. And you go out on the run and the run course, and again, I have some video of this, but uh, the run course is one of the most beautiful I've done, uh, but uh, that beauty belies its uh, beast-like quality. <laughs> it was very difficult. Yeah, most of the most of the run is part of a trail system that goes around the lake, uh, and you basically hug the edge of the lake. Uh, it's through the woods. Uh, part of it is gravel uh, and fairly uh, wide and well used, uh, which is probably the easier section uh, of the the run. Uh, part of it is real trail with roots and and twists and turns and hills and. Uh, albeit probably not big hills, it does take a lot of more technical effort yeah. uh, to be able to navigate. And then there's a fairly long section, I would say a mile and a half maybe, uh, that's on a paved road, but it's a false flat. And so you're running uphill, um, and that, that can take a toll as well. Yeah. So a couple of things I'll say about the course, uh, besides its beauty and the fact that it's almost entirely shaded, which is really, really, I mean, unique amongst courses I've done. Um, It is a trail, like you said. Uh, There's a lot of twisty turns at the beginning of it. Uh, There's a lot of exposed roots and a little bit of uneven uh, surface. Um, I, you know, I took a digger towards the end. I was tired. I misstepped and just didn't misjudged uh, one of these exposed roots. And you know, it's my own fault. And but it it hurt. (laughs) And uh, I did see a couple other people fall late in the race too. So that's the thing. If you're pushing it on the race and you come around that second loop. You know what the course is like, but that doesn't mean that you'll have the energy to run it like the first lap. That's right. And that's the second thing I want to say is that because you're in the woods, your GPS doesn't tend to work. And, you know, I was counting on that for my pacing, uh, planning on pacing my race a certain way, and then all of a sudden my GPS isn't working, I'm not getting my pace numbers, and therefore didn't race the way I wanted to. And as a result, I think I overcooked that first lap and then, you know, ran out of gas around mile 10 and that led to me falling, etc. But um, that's just something to be aware of. Uh, You know, if you're going to run by perceived effort, you better know what your pace feels like for certain perceived effort. The other thing is you can use a foot pod. I didn't have my foot pod today. Um, and uh, just to know that the GPS is going to be unreliable in the wooded sections. But, you know, it's a really tough course. It's really challenging, but there are people who manage to run pretty fast times here today. Yeah, so. I mean, I, I saw uh, times on the men's side and like the 115 range yeah. and the women's side there are 120 so yeah. Yeah. there's definitely very fast times yeah. even on the age groupers yeah. 
Um, so and, and that's another thing. This field was, was really good. Yeah. yeah, this was a really fast field. So there were some very fast times being put down. Yeah, the one thing I would say about the run is if you're not, if you're a road racer and you're not uh, a trail runner, do go run some trails. Get used uh, to that. Get used yeah. to lifting your feet a little bit more. Uh, get used to the uh, change in direction and things like yeah. that uh, because that will pay off dividends when yeah. you get on that run. Uh, so let's just finish up by talking about weather. Um, the, this year was perfect. phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, last year, same thing. It yeah. was, it was a beautiful bluebird day. Yeah. Uh, not too hot, uh, partly because a lot of the course is shaded. Um, uh, there have been races in the past where it's been very windy. Um, the weather does tend to change fairly quickly. Um, I think the forecast 10 days out called for rain today, um, and then it changed to be in the upper 50s, and I think the high today was 70-something uh, in the afternoon. Yeah. Um, but of course, because you start racing an hour earlier than most 70.3s, uh, you're more likely to miss that hotter weather. Yeah, and I mean, that was a real benefit. I mean, I, we were both off the bike around 9.30, uh, you know, done with the run by around 11.15, 11.30. So, I mean, it was uh, uh, a real uh, boon to get the race done before the warmer weather came yeah. around. But again, it was shaded, so I don't yeah, really and, know that it would have mattered. Since we're so far north, I think first light today was 4.30 a.m. Oh, it was, yeah, it was crazy. So yeah. as we were driving yeah. to the race, the the sky was already getting light, and yeah. and it wasn't a problem at all as far as you know setting up transition or anything like that. Uh, any final thoughts about this race? Uh, this is definitely one of my favorite races. Um, it is one of two races that I've done uh, both this year that I've actually done the, the same course over again. Uh, St. George was the other one. Um, and it's just the location, you can't beat it. Um, and the people that are volunteering are very nice. Uh, I love Sydney. It's a very cute town. Uh, Victoria's got lots of stuff to offer as well. And if you want to stay longer, there's plenty of things to do um, and see on the island or even in Vancouver that uh, it's it makes for a great vacation as well yeah i totally agree this was uh, a terrific race terrific venue really great community support and um yeah i would definitely highly recommend it and uh, encourage anybody who's thinking about it to consider coming out here it's a fantastic uh, fantastic race on the calendar and uh very challenging but uh, definitely worth doing uh, Mike Jackson is a triathlete who is going to be at the World Championships in Nice this year, and uh, I thank him so much for joining me on the Triathlete Route Talk today. Thanks for having me. And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Links to the medical references, as well as to everything else discussed on the show, can be found in the show notes at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. There, you'll also find a link to Cyclic, the makers of integrated lights and cycling cameras, with the 25% off coupon code that I mentioned in my interview with Megan Hotman. Don't forget to check out and subscribe to the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel for a video of this episode's Triathlete Routauk and other triathlon-related content. 
If you have feedback or a question for consideration to be answered on the program, please email me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please do pay a visit to www.try.coaching.com where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com where I hope that you will visit and give small, independent bands a chance. The TriDark Podcast will be back again soon with another listener question for me to answer, an interview with another person of interest in the triathlon world, and another episode of the Triathlon Utah. Until then, train hard, train healthy.